back there in that country, the stars kind of aligned coming out of my tent one morning. We had been just hunting like, like mad men, killing ourselves, hiking all over God's country. And uh, popped my head out from the tent in the morning and I see some young rams coming down the hillside and sneak down to kind of investigate further because you don't typically see just real young rams off on their own. And lo and behold, came around the corner and uh, there was a band a little farther away, but uh, legal ram. I always keep at least, you know, half a liter to a liter somewhere in my bag that I will not touch until like emergency situation. I always, always, always have a backup headlamp in my kill kit that is completely fully charged, locked, left alone. And I always have a power bar, like a energy bar, or granola bar, some sort of like kind of, you know, booster bar in my bag is that emergency last resort. Because after a pack of like that, an experience like that, we kind of, that was probably the moment in my hunting career where I went from just a bullheaded, I'm invincible, I can get through anything without water or food or anything. Like that was probably one of the most humbling situations I've had in the bush where I realized right. everybody kind of over prepares or overpacks in certain areas based on their previous experiences. And you learn kind of what everybody, like I get a lot of people that ask me, you know, what's the perfect pack setup look like? And I'm going on this hunt. What do I need to have in my bag? And I'll tell you, like, I can tell you what I pack. I've always told you, this is what I do, but I'm not telling you this is what's perfect for you. Right. The older I get, maybe it's just you get into more interesting situations and kind of learn, okay, maybe I want this next time or that or the other. But, uh, you know, after some of my stories I've had and close calls I've had with the gear I've had, I'm like, how did I not die as a kid out in the bush? But yeah, <laughs> well, I'm kind of glad I had those experiences. Things get very serious very quick. Like hypothermia, you like, you start to panic, anxiety kicks in, you like you don't think straight. So even just the ability to think calmly in those types of situations, like you learn a lot about yourself and about, you know, understanding your situation in a hurry when you're out there. That's why I always say like hunting, that's why a big reason I can't wait to introduce my kid to it one day is because I think you learn so many valuable life lessons. Hey guys, real quick before we get into this episode, I need you to do me a couple of favors. First, go give us a review on iTunes. Can't stress it enough. It's really, really important for me to help keep this free and to help me keep it going. Next, get involved with your hunting rights. Go join Howlful Wildlife. Super simple. Takes a couple minutes. You can even do the free membership. I don't care, but be involved. Lastly, I want you to do yourself a favor and up your shooting game Go get you some Phoenix shooting bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%. That's all I got for you. Let's get into this episode. Hi, welcome to Days and Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Uh, today we are going to talk to Joe Appel and uh, kind of listen to some stories, just kind of see where he's from and where, how he fits into the puzzle here. And... Uh, it's my first time actually talking to him, first time meeting him. Most of the time, I've got a relationship of some sort with people that I have on, so it's kind of a cool little endeavor for me, meet somebody new. What's going on, man? Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I know this is exciting. Typically, I'm the same as you. I've got a bit of a rapport, uh, so this will be a fun call. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Just give us a little bit of rundown about yourself. Uh, I know you used to be a professional athlete and... Uh, kind of wore a couple different hats here in the in the industry yeah a little bit about me so i'm just a i mean homegrown small town kid i grew up in a logging town here in british columbia canada called squamish right on the edge in brackendale grew up hunting fishing my dad was a welder and my mom ran the local mushroom buying station so we did a lot of like wild mushrooming obviously did a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing. So I kind of came by a passion for the outdoors naturally. But as I kind of started growing up, I became a bit of a giant. So <laughs> my passion for the outdoors almost took a backseat. I, I ended up uh, pursuing a career in athletics. I went down to Washington State, uh, played football down there. Then I got drafted in the CFL, got to have a bit of a cool career there. Um, but through the whole time, my I mean, that was a really cool passion. That was a career I followed. I did well at it. I was good at it, but it was never my like number one passion. Um, so when I retired from pro football, I kind of got to dive right back into my love for the outdoors nice. uh, in a bit of a roundabout way. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a long story, but to condense it for the point of this conversation, uh, a sales position, I was getting back into the outdoors quite a bit and a sales position opened up for Wild TV, which is a, a Canada's largest hunting mm-hmm. outdoor TV network. And uh, after retiring from pro football, I went back to school, I got my master's in marketing and advertising. And the sales position opened up for the network. And I just thought, I want to be involved in the outdoor community in the industry some way, because I've always met the best people through the outdoors. I've always, it's been such a big part of my life since I was young. I just wanted to be back involved in it. And I thought I'd be some kind of back office sales guy. Um, so I did up my resume, sent it into the network and they called me up and said, listen, you're our lead candidate for the sales position. Nice. Um, but given your resume with regards to during my athletic career uh, and my professional career, I had done a lot of work in the media, representing the teams, doing all of the, you know, the TV interviews and whatnot. So they're like, as a part of that, would you consider being a host on one of the shows? And kind of that's what really kicked things off with my career in the outdoor media side of the world as well. So I'm a director of business development for Canada's largest outdoor TV network. That's awesome. um, but I also uh, co-host one of our top shows as well with uh, Steve Eklund. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, so I actually, I aired on Wild TV for a, I guess you call it a season, many, many moons ago, like, like right when they first started off. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a long time ago, early 2000s. I uh, I would like to imagine things have probably changed a yeah. bit since back. <laughs> they have. It, uh, it started very, very, you know, crudely and organically and has grown quite a bit since then. Yeah, that they're one of the few around that are still doing okay because tv outdoor tv has kind of fallen off and mainly because of the the business model of it was and is honestly is still pretty terrible in my opinion right in in the fact that like me as a tv show so i had a tv show 2004 well i i moved it to the web and i don't know if you and i would talked about this or not but i started the hunting channel online I own the hunting channel online actually still, but I'm one of the first guys to in, invent outdoor TV online before YouTube, before any of that was a thing. So I had a TV show online before that was always a big thing. But the normal TV model for outdoor TV model, I should say, is okay, purchase airtime, whatever, 50,000, 60,000, 200,000, whatever it is now, it might be ridiculous i don't even know i don't even know what it is but it was like sixty thousand dollars when i first started which was a lot and you you purchased sixty thousand dollars and then you got your contract and then you went out and you try to sell all your ads you know and all your sponsors so you took in the money for that and hopefully there was enough money left over to produce it um, mm-hmm. and then you'd go and you'd make a show and then you'd put it on air and, you know, and every year you were just chasing money and chasing money and hopefully to keep it on, it was very, very difficult. Like where most TV is kind of the opposite. The TV network gets the ads and pays the TV show, like to put it on there. It's like, it's kind of like a reverse, so yeah it's it's an interesting landscape i think the landscape's probably changed quite a bit since then with regards to you know how the contracts and structure works out especially Mm -hmm. now that social media and different things like like you have different platforms that are competing in the space so i think it's a much different landscape my scope i don't really deal with our producers all that much and my show like our show the edge uh, it's a network owned show mm-hmm. okay um so kind of the, so the way a, it you have a out. normal structure you have like a traditional structure because it's network owned yeah i think it's we're very fortunate in that it allows us a bit more of a, a freedom with regards we don't feel as pressured to take on like those quote-unquote sponsorships or things like that like we partner with brands that we truly believe in and mm-hmm. that we really like we feel like it makes our experience better in the outdoors but we're not like oh my gosh we have to create this budget just so we can get on air right because um, i do think that creates a bit of a toxic environment and, exactly. and it did bring a lot of negative attention to the to the industry right exactly. because now all of a sudden it's like you have all these guys 
pushing the slap chop of the outdoors just to get a show on air. And it's nothing against the host because they're just trying to pursue a passion, Mm -hmm. but it's just the way that the beast kind of forced people to go. Right. So I think it's changed in a lot of ways. I mean, again, from my experience, what, what, what I've done, it's certainly been a little different than that, fortunately, but, um, yeah, I know it's a constantly evolving, like, space and especially in the last few years with social media with youtube with all of these other platforms coming up i mean no but i mean you're bringing listen you're bringing a reality uh you know a uh, truth to to light here like that business model like you said basically created a bunch of snake oil salesmen you know out of necessity absolutely out of necessity you had to say oh this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and then you had to follow the money. So next year you might've been saying something else was the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, and it just created a kind of a, a crappy situation. And what happened, I think here in the United States is a lot of people stopped watching outdoor TV. Yeah. Because, um, they just didn't feel like, you know, the people were being honest with them and, I, th- I think that I, I really feel like that had that. And then the invent of the pro staff with social media. I mean, anybody oh gosh, who, yeah. that, that was really devastating because listen, when I first got into it and, and you know, I got a social media following for sure, but, and I was heavy into that, the, the Facebooks and all that back then even, but it became about the influencer and their following versus what their resume was. Like you used to have to have a resume in the outdoors yes. for people to want to listen yeah. to what you had to say. You it know? became about followers more than field experience. Right. Exactly. I think, I think that was the biggest issue that happened was uh, followers over field experience. And, and like you said, uh, people got their recognition or their credibility just by a number versus, mm-hmm. you know, number of days in the field or how often they do things. Right. That's, I think that's a big part of why I don't like saying, Oh, I'm a specialist in X, Y, and Z. I'm like, you want to see what I'm good at, follow along and watch what I do, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm the, you know, the latest and greatest and stuff. I mean, I go out and I do well in the bush and I hunt hard, but I just think there's so many people out there claiming to be the absolute best. And I'm like, ah, it just kind of gets old to me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the thing too. There's, I mean, you can't say best, even if you are top of the top, like it's hard to say best. Cause you don't really even know, like there's, I wouldn't even say I'm the best in my freaking city, you know? Uh, and I've been around the block <laughs> a lot. Yeah, It's just cause you never know. There's just always somebody, you know, I could probably say I'm the best on my block, but that's because I'm the only guy that hunts on my street. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just it's 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 it doesn't bode well for developing the relationships that manufacturers want to have with the potential no, clients. You know, so uh, yeah, yes. I mean, it's the same with the products I use. I I, I never say this is the only option for this or right. the, the 100% best option for this. I say this is the best for the style of hunting I do and for my needs. Mm-hmm. That's why I choose it, right? That's why we work with these. But like if you're a tree stand whitetail hunter, the gear you use is going to be a lot different than me when I'm doing a 14-day stone sheet backpack hunt, right? Like, yep, 100%. 100%. Yeah, I, um, I kind of prided myself on that <clears throat> through the years. I didn't flip flop. I didn't wane. I didn't like, Oh, you know, I didn't, I never followed the money. It was like from a business standpoint, you know, I could have been doing better off at different parts of my times of my life. Like if I would have followed the money, but you know, I always wanted, I, for me, my hunting was always the most important thing. So mm-hmm. I wanted what use what I knew worked for me or what I thought was the best whether they were paying me or not, you know, and, uh, that always worked out good for me. And I, you know, I managed to have staying power because of that. And then really up until recently, I kind of got somewhat canceled in the last year or so on social media. Like it's absolutely really, nuts. yeah, it's weird. I think a lot of it has to do with, um, how for wildlife and me getting 
a bigger political voice. Um, but right. I mean, you could see it. It's just like a crazy drop off. Like if I go back through my posts and I oh, see yeah. engagement, yeah, yeah. just Any, absolutely anything, nuts. especially up here in Canada, mm-hmm. the engagement, um, like during the tail end of COVID when they started putting in all this bill C 21 and all this different stuff, the engagement, and just people like literally can search your account and can't even find you unless they scroll all the like they can type your exact account in and they have to scroll all the way to the bottom to find you. Like they yeah. actively buried anybody that was active without with hunting, with basically anything that's fighting for what they view as like toxic masculinity or, you know, right, just right. basically our old traditional ways of life. They've started kind of hiding us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, especially up in Canada. I was surprised. I didn't think it would have hit as, as hard south on the border, but it sounds like it's had the same. Well, I mean, I look, you guys as well. it's crazy. Like I look at, so July 4th of last year, I was just looking at, looking at the numbers I had, I put like four, four or five reels up and all of them have, I don't know, 10,000 plus, actually there's two of them in there that went kind of viral. You know, they're like a couple hundred thousand views. And I post something mm-hmm. now. If I break a thousand, it's crazy. Like uh, I used to get on the average of, you know, anywhere from two hundred. Let's say like one fifty on a real low end like, and you yep. know, four or five hundred normal. You know, uh, now if I get like twenty five to a hundred, I'm like, I'm like doing well. So it's weird. It's like. It's God. and and it it's kind of brutal because I it was right about that time too that I started getting really really politically outspoken, but in the in the hunting space, and I do you know every once in a while I pipe off because I can't keep my mouth shut about something that's not uh, you know something that's more mainstream than hunting politically, and uh, yeah no I've definitely noticed it's. It's crazy. Well, we can only be quiet for so like you can only bite your lip for so long. And I yeah. get it for like, my for me for work. I mean, social media is a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. Um, same for you. It's part of what we do, right? Being active in the media, but to have to kind of stifle yourself or bite your tongue a bit, you know, because of that backlash. I think if any of us truly spoke our mind on a daily basis with no filter, we'd all be <laughs> we'd, <laughs> we'd all be truly kicked off of the platform. Pretty. Uh, that's, Pretty darn quick there. Ain't that the truth for sure? Yeah, no, without a doubt. It's a it's a scary, slippery slope, you know. Like for me, like it's almost kind of made me a little bit depressed, to be honest with you. I've spent so much time and effort into growing what I've had, and right. and now it's just just like that. Boom! It's all it's like all gone. Not, it's not all gone, like, you know, whatever. But a guy that has basically 32,000 followers on Instagram should be getting more than, you know, 50 likes. And I don't think it's my content. I oh, mean, man. Maybe my content is no nope. fa- falling off a little bit. I don't know. But, and I, I know it actually has in the last couple of months just because I don't care so much anymore because now, you know, I'm like, what am I doing it for to, to get? the f- the four people that are looking at me like i don't you know i don't know and Ooh, yeah uh, it's just, that's got to be demotivating in a, yeah, it in a big way you create this impressive platform you've kind of nurtured this and created an audience yeah. and then all of a sudden you know the platform pulls a curtain in front of you know in between you and your audience mm-hmm. and you kind of just feel hopeless you're like i built this i invested all this time and now you guys are just gonna you know because i don't align with your views you're just gonna somehow pull that away from me yeah it's it's pretty shitty, pretty shitty. Well, it's you know it's something that we're dealing with all across the, the world, you know, and uh, it's just a, a, a weird, a weird power struggle, I guess, between ideals, you know, and uh, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's uh, this I'm, is def- I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm good. I know. I know it sounds kind of you know pie in the sky, but I I really do hope that at some point there's going to be this moment where people actually wake up and snap back into reality because people have just gone so far mm-hmm. chasing this perfect world where nobody can offend anybody and everybody you know lives in the planet of rainbows and unicorns mm. it just seems like a weird place to be right now and i'm like whatever happened to you know traditional values and 
I don't know. It's just, we're in a weird place these days. I really, really hope there's a reset or some sort of uh, restructuring of power or just people come back to common sense would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think the latter is probably the the best because the reset would probably definitely mean some, some crazy, you know, catastrophic type, you know, changes or whatever, some, you know, apocalyptic type crap, you know, to make that happen. So unless, no unless people just wake up one day, it's just like, Hey, Oh, President Biden isn't a freaking retard. Um, then I can't even say that word, but you know, I, I just, I'm just pulling shit out of my ass right now, but it's just the dumb things that go on that people close their eyes to is, is beyond me. Anyway, I've taken us very far away from hunting here. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Let me get let me get you back on track. Let's get you back on. We were talking about gear for a quick second there that we like, and I I noticed that uh, one you wear the same boots I wear, and uh, two that you're wearing Canis. I started wearing that pant that um I forget which one is it called, but you're actually wearing the same pants. It's the one that has the little um that has the knee pads. It has the little gator on the bottom. Alpine. Alpine, Alpine Light, or the Kafui? I think it's the Alpine Light. They're pretty light. It's all like the Cordura, maybe. Is it Cordura? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, Yeah. Cordura. Yeah, how how unreal are those knee pads? Yeah, they're really great, man. I I like them. And I've been a Sika guy for a really long time, but I'm not one of those people that just like, I'm not uh, tribal in what I wear and what I use. But... um, yeah, and I, I uh, saw those guys at the Hunt Expo, and they did some stuff for us with Alpha Wildlife, and I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to check it out. Oh, and cool. I, I, I finally uh, I bought myself a, a hoodie, uh, one of the mid-layers, and I really liked it. I was like, all right. So when I got to the to the Hunt Expo, when I saw their stuff, I'm like, oh, these pants look pretty badass. I want to freaking try them. And I, I tried them out. I really like them. They're freaking nice. They're comfy, and they're knee pads stay in the right place and it's really uh and i like the little gator deal on the bottom and um yeah i i, I enjoy yeah, no. them i mean give them give those guys a little shout out but oh, i appreciate that i'm sure they'll appreciate that <laughs> yeah i i, I, yeah, we've I been i like you know stuff that's good i like to i like to tell people about it so yeah it's kind of funny i uh that was an interesting story. I met Ryan down in Argentina, Ryan and Kurt there. Uh, okay. Cameraman, right before COVID kicked off, we were actually down there. I was down there for a stag hunt and we got stuck. So was, so was, was I. So was I. I was there for that too. I got stuck really? there for 21 days. Dude, we had a very similar story. We might've been on the same plane. Got, no kidding. We got stuck um, in a small airport going in due to paperwork for one of the other guys coming in for the hunt. Mm-hmm. So I go sitting there and I was looking at Ryan's gear. I'm like, dude, what's this little logo on your stuff? I've never seen it. So he started telling me about the product and the gear. And I kind of saw a little bit of it. I was like, it looks real light. It looks kind of like it's going to rip after like two weeks kind of mm-hmm. thing. Right. So I didn't think too much of it, but we exchanged contact information. Then while we were in on our hunt, the world shut down, COVID hits, mm-hmm. lock up. Same. They were able to get out. <laughs> Before it all hit, but I was in La Pampa and La Pampa. So was I. We were quarantined (laughs) for 14 days. No way. And uh, Ryan, before anybody else from the network, before anybody reached out to me, Ryan contacts me, a guy I just met in the airport and was like, hey, man, you're down there. Uh, We got out. If there's anything I can do to help you guys get out of the country, to, you know, help you be more comfortable while you're down there, this, that, and the other, it's a crazy time in the world. Let me know. And right away, I was like, okay, this is a stand-up individual. Mm-hmm. Like, I really like this guy. So when I came, when I, you know, COVID, we ended up getting home, I reached out to him. I said, listen, we got home. I just want to say that meant a lot to me that you reached out and did all of that. Like, there's not a lot of people these days that'll do that kind of thing. I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some of your gear. I want to test it out. So I, I got some of the gear. I ordered it, and I tried it out, and I did my best my best to tear this stuff up and it, it stood up. So I called them and that's kind of when, when I started wearing that gear and it was a really good quality gear, but amazing people behind it too, which to me means a lot. these yeah, days. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
without a doubt. So now but, I'm like uh, super curious about your about your story in Argentina. When you came home, did you come out on a commercial flight from that was put on by uh, Eastern Airlines? So when we came back, it was interesting. So we got we got taken back into Buenos Aires. We got quarantined in a hotel yep. in Buenos Aires, like a giant hotel. There was like I was there us too. and the staff from the hotel. And that was, you were there at that. I had my own, we had our own wing. Yep. Yeah. It was absolutely insane. Like military personnel walking up and down the streets, um, keeping like with like big machine guns, keeping everybody inside. And, uh, we, our flight coming back, we weren't allowed. We never stopped in the U S because I'm from Canada. So our flight had to be direct from Argentina back to Canada. So we would have been on different flights, but I don't know if you had the same experience, but you're sitting there at night and you're like, okay, we're flying out tomorrow. And then you go on and all of a sudden, like you had your flights booked, everything, and you go on and there's just no flight information anymore. Your flight's been deleted, canceled off. Like you weren't contacted. So I did that. It was like multiple days in limbo. And then all of a sudden you find out, okay, this flight's actually happening. You have to rush a doctor to your room to get these tests. And then you get escorted out to the cabs. You're not even allowed to ride to the cab with the other person you're traveling with or Mm. ride to the airport in the cab. Yeah. With another person, you have to go in your own individual cabs, get to the airport. Like it was something out of like a end of the world apocalypse movie. It was a different time. Oh yeah. It was nuts. My my experience was very similar, a little, little different. I actually, it was, it was crazy. So I was in contact with the embassy and basically in a roundabout way, I facilitated the flight home. I paid for a private flight to go from Santa Rosa to uh, Buenos Aires because we were told that if we left via bus, even with the paperwork that we had, that we had been quarantined for 14 days, that we would possibly be detained and da 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 There was this whole thing. So we got a private yeah. plane from, La pa- uh, from uh, Santa Rosa and La Pampa to Buenos Aires private transfer from Buenos Aires to that hotel that same I guarantee it's the same hotel that we stayed in. We spent two two days there basically. The other reason why is we this flight that we got on basically was sanctioned by the it's it's Eastern Airlines. It doesn't exist anymore. It was it's a defunct airline that the US government uses to get people out when they need to. And they reactivate it. It's like, a, it's a really weird thing. But so I found <laughs> out about this. I found out about this from another hunting buddy of mine that they were flying people out of Brazil with this Eastern Airlines and da 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 da. And so I called the embassy and the guy that I've been talking to, one of the assistants to the ambassador. And I'm like, listen, this is the situation. I said, listen, they're using this airline to take people out of here to there because we i booked like five different flights and all five of them got canceled i couldn't get a commercial flight we couldn't get a commercial flight back to the states so there was like 200 americans 200 plus americans stuck in la pampa um or in argentina at the time or more i might have been a little bit more but somewhere around there and um basically I was like, you need to get a hold of Eastern Airlines and set this up. And and like two days later, I get a call from the, that guy. And he's like, yes, and I got it. Or I got an email. We got this set up. They got this plane. They're going to do this flight. All you Americans have to get to Buenos Aires and have to get there by a certain date or a certain time. And that's another reason why I had a charter plane too, because we weren't going to get there fast enough. We get there, and then right. they and then they delayed that flight for a day to let allow more Americans to show up, and then we flew from Buenos to Miami. Then I got stuck in Miami for because my we missed my flight, uh, the connecting flight from Miami to Arizona, which is where I live now, and uh, we had to stay another day in in Miami, and we weren't allowed to leave the room there. It was. Yeah. It was, but I got to tell you, I spent 20 days or, or I should say 18 days hunting (laughs) the whole time because we had nothing to do. I was going to ask if you All we did was hunt. We had the same, 
It was awesome. Yeah, we had the same things. We were, we were we were coming home one day from a hunt, and all of a sudden there's all of these. Yeah, they were all there. Police also. The yeah. We had the same. Thing. And I'm like, what's going on? And uh, Alejandro, the gentleman that runs, uh, we were with TGB Outfitters, and he's he's got all of our passports, and he's he's <clears> going <throat> over all this information with the cops. And I'm like, whoa, what's happening here? And he just looks at me, he's like, Joe, just get inside. I'll come talk to you afterwards. Right. So yeah. he comes in afterwards, and he kind of looks at me, and he goes, well. It's an interesting situation. I go, okay, what's going on? And that's, you know, they had just imposed a quarantine. And he said, listen, you can either leave now and go stay at a hotel or uh, one of these areas they had set up to stage you while you waited out your quarantine. Yeah. Like, that's what they want you guys to do. Or we already have all the food supplies here mm-hmm. and they just shut down the hunting season for the rest of the year. Right. So you can stay here and we'll just keep hunting until your quarantine's up. And I was like, Ooh, that's a real tough one. Let me think about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. My, so the guy that runs mine was like, yeah, well, I'm going to give you guys this sweet deal. As long as, as long as you keep hunting every day and you know, you take a couple extra animals and he discounted everything. I mean, like a gold, metal stag whatever was that was like twenty thousand dollars twenty six thousand dollars he dropped it to like six <laughs> it was like okay wow yeah because he knew we were his only income for the year he was screwed like he lost he had like 80 different clients coming. it was we were right it there. was hard because we were it was the start of season almost like they were yeah. just getting things fired up right yeah. and then they have everything like all of those all of your guides, everybody, like they rely on that mm-hmm. and they had just bought all of their supplies. And then it was just like, no notice, cancel, boom, shut the gates. And we don't even know when it's going to open back up. I mean, but that, that's what everybody went through. But I mean, it was, uh, yeah. it was an interesting time because selfishly, like I was sitting there thinking, this is amazing. I get to hunt more. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, and, and, you know, everybody there was trying to make the most of it. But you know, at the same time, like they just had their whole season ripped out from under them. Yeah. And then you still have the dark cloud of, I'm expected to get home and, you know, we're hoping we'll be able to get home at the end of this, but there's a chance you're hearing the whole time that they're closing borders to other countries mm-hmm. for prolonged periods of time. So you're like, okay, well, <laughs> it was a very weird, weird time, a weird experience, but uh, that's, that's wild that you were down in Argentina at the exact same time. That's yeah, that's cool. not, that was nuts. We we're probably pretty damn close to each other too. That's weird. Um, I bet you, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I bet you we were darn close. Like, mm-hmm. sounds like we were probably ships passing in the night coming out of there as well. <laughs> yeah, probably. Because I think they only had the one, I think they only had one or two hotels even opened up for people to be staying at. So we must have just missed each other. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's pretty nuts. I don't remember. It was a pretty big, nice, fancy hotel. I don't remember which one it was called, but off the top of my head. Did it have like those huge hanging like wicker basket looking chandeliers in the main entrance? I I think so, yeah. Yeah. I think that was it. I, I bet you it was the same one. I bet yeah. you it was the same one. They told us it was it was all the pilots, anybody from any airline mm-hmm. and any people passing through were all staying right there next to that canal. Yep. That's crazy. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was living my best life over there, man. I had my wife with me, so I was like <laughs> You know, if it wasn't for oh, the man, fact that my you, kids were, if it wasn't for the fact that my kids were still here, I could have stayed there longer. <laughs> you know, I was just starting. No to, kidding. You would have been like, no rush. Yeah, my my <laughs> kids were in good hands. You know, they were with my mother in law and my parents, so I wasn't like, I wasn't like worried or anything. And but you know, at the same time, I knew they, you know, they needed to get back to life somehow. Even though there was no life for the first two weeks, you know, everybody was locked up and whatever. But. That was, uh, yeah, that was pretty freaking nuts. But I was shit, man. I, I tell everybody I was living the best life. I was eating like a freaking king. They fed us so well. I was hunting every day. Oh. I was <laughs> having sex with my wife every day. It was like, you know, fucking great, <laughs> man. I couldn't freaking, I couldn't ask for a better trip of my life. So, but no uh, kidding. They were probably showing up telling you it's time to go. And you're saying, you sure? Maybe we yeah. should stay next week. You sure we're safe? <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't yeah, worried I about COVID at all until we were getting on the freaking plane. It was the dumbest thing ever. They had us all six feet apart in a in one line that wrapped around the whole freaking airport. Right? Yes, I remember that. We finally get checked in 
And then they crammed us all into one room, <laughs> shoulder to shoulder. I'm like, what was the point of you keeping us six feet apart, you retards? And and we're, now we're in here. And then here's the other thing is I this airline, this thing, we had to you know do it online. And I paid for, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pay for freaking first class because I want to be away from as many people as possible. I don't, I don't give a shit what it's going to cost right now. I've already lost so much money because of this trip. Let's, let's, let's just spend the money. And then when I got there, they gave my freaking seat to somebody else already. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I paid no. for this seat. <laughs> you know, it was, it was freaking nuts. I, I, I about lost my shit. It was, uh, yeah. We, we paid for, uh, first class for the last stage. So we had, um, uh, we had to fly into Toronto and then fly across Canada from Toronto to Vancouver here. So we played, paid for first class upgrade for the last leg, just cause it was such a big ordeal. We said, you know, let's be comfortable the last leg. Right. And like we'll be able to relax, have some food or whatever, maybe a drink on the flight. Mm-hmm. And then at the start of the flight, they go, Oh, by the way, because of COVID, we're not going to be serving you. There's no service. There's no nothing. There's no, inter- no interaction. I'm like, well, then why didn't we just pay this huge upgrade fee to get, you know, first comfy, class when you didn't seats. get any of the perks at all. <laughs> comfy seats, I guess. I mean, you did. Yeah, we had a little bit better, you know, space for the seat, but not not even definitely not for worth that upgrade at that time. But uh, yeah, I'm but sure. at least I did get my seat. They didn't give mine away. You've yeah. got that on me. Oh man, that was oof. my my wife had to talk me. I was very close to throwing the freaking love seat out the window of the damn hotel the night before because oh man I, it's it's too long of a story and i've told it on the podcast a couple of times i don't want to bore the shit out of my freaking listeners because i've had it i've talked about it i can too many times i can but, hear the steam starting to come out of your ears right oh now. dude i was i was like i turned into the hulk i was just i held it together i was good the whole time and then that little bit of the day before we had problems getting food and then that night on the phone with the airlines trying to make things work and um and then the then having that happen to us the next day i was just like oh, I, to, I was like i was going to get ex- escorted out of there by some federale or some shit i was like you know what i better go just shut the hell up let's get home <laughs> so get home and get through it all yeah and then you got home and now the now the world's reopened and it seems like it's funny enough it seemed like COVID was never going to go away and now it's a distant memory in most places other than just the you know financial impact it's had on the world which is a whole different story yeah financial impact it's changed a lot of the way things are like logistically and stuff like that and you know i was lucky enough because we live in arizona it's a pretty conservative state well it was anyway uh until covid but um you know we didn't have the lockdowns that some people saw i know you guys in canada so i have friends that live here in scottsdale that are originally from canada and their their whole family was just like they couldn't do anything i had my buddy that was in new brunswick and he was like he's like man i was i was literally locked in my house for a year but we all survived right we're we're all here and uh moving on to the next uh chapter in our lives i guess hopefully uh exactly. things will get better so uh we're all here and i'm, I'm okay. go- oh, go ahead. no go ahead i was just gonna say we're all here and i'm i'm sure on some level we're all better for it oh yeah yeah <laughs> for the most part <laughs> um <laughs> so yeah i I wanted you to. Uh, I wanted to ask you to share a couple of uh, hunting stories with us. Maybe one like your most memorable, outrageous, whatever kind of hunt you want to call it, and then maybe another one where you learned something about hunting that changed the way you hunt today. Most memorable. If I have to look back right now, I'm sure it's influenced by the fact that sheep season's right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, but last year. I had a pretty wild trip, went way up northern BC, jet boated up river for a day and a half, and then hiked a day and a half off the river bottom, 
back back in and I've, I've been hunting sheep at the point I've been hunting sheep for three years, two trips a year and just hadn't connected. Um, and, uh, had normally been out hunting with buddies and with friends or, you know, on those trips, but this time around it was me and a, a cameraman. Uh, so I can't call it a true solo hunt, but it was a cameraman and I, my cameraman had been on a few white tail hunts and black bear hunts. So not sheep country type hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, and just back there in that country, the stars kind of aligned coming out of my tent one morning. We'd been just hunting like, like mad men, killing ourselves, hiking all over God's country. And, uh, pop my head out from the tent in the morning and I see some young rams coming down the hillside and sneak down to kind of investigate further because you don't typically see just real young rams off on their own. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, came around the corner and, uh, there was a band a little farther away, but, uh, legal Ram, likely two legal Rams in there, but, um, you know, was able to connect on my first, uh, my first sheep being a, a stone sheep hunt, a true, like kind of back country hiking off the river hunt. That one was, that was an emotional, emotional hunt for me there. That's probably one of my, you know, most top of the mind, like, epic quote-unquote hunts if you will now Mm -hmm. an absolute blast and i tell you what i sure missed having my friends with me when it came time to pack that ram off the mountain because i mentioned it was a day and a half hike to get into where we were well to come out my cameraman already had all his batteries and his gear in his backpack so he wasn't taking any more gear which meant joe got to load a full ram shoulder cape and the head on his back and come out with all my gear and that <laughs> fun all the way back down to the river so that was that sure was a treat um that's one i've been reflecting on a lot uh lately here uh, talking about uh, a hunt that really taught me a lot if i look back there's there's probably one hunt and it would be more the pack out than the hunt that kind of taught me a lot about preparedness in the backcountry and going in and being smart mm-hmm. um and it was uh, it was an elk hunt we had been hunting hard kind of in, in southeastern BC and pushing in hard and having close calls with some bulls closer to the roads. And then finally one day, my buddies and I are like, we're going to wake up early and we're going to hike way to the top of this one mountain that's just so far off the road that nobody's dumb enough to go hunt that area. And it was just going to be a day hunt. So we're just going to hike in there, day, dinner kind of thing, but we'll pack some snacks just to get us through the day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we hoofed it way up into this absolutely nasty spot, like way up over this one ridge down into a back bowl and waited out the whole day. Had, uh, what, like a few bulls responding, but nothing was showing up. It was hot. Nothing was showing up. So we're about half hour from last light, maybe an hour from last light. And we're sitting there and we're like, okay, let's start eating all of our food and drinking all of our water before the hike down. So we got lighter packs. Mm. And that right there is the start of where things started going wrong. So we ate all of our food and drank every last drop of water we had. Oh, jeez. Getting ready for the hike out. (laughs) And then next thing you know, a bull chirps up and starts calling. And we had been cow calling and bugling earlier, but he had been quiet for a while. So next thing you know, he starts chirping and pipes up. So we're sitting there and, okay, well, maybe we're going to wait right till last light after all. And, it sounded like he was pretty far off, right? It's a long shot. It's probably not going to come together, but we're going to keep trying. So we keep calling and calling. And next thing you know, he starts closing distance, aggressive and climbing uphill and coming right in at us. And probably about, you know, just before last light, he pops out. I get a perfect shot off on him, hard shot, pile him up, not too far below us. And we hike down to him. Now here we are just at last light, just recovered our bull. Mm. way above camp, no food, no water. Um, like we're not in good shape, right? We're celebrating like crazy. We just got a bull down, but, but um, looming. you know, we kind of realized we're <laughs> in a bit of a, we're in a nasty spot here. This could get really interesting really quick. So we, we had an inreach with us. So we inreach our buddies down at camp. We're like, Hey, bull down, you know, we're all excited about it. Tell them the situation. And they're like, okay, stay where you guys are at. We're going to, we're going to come up and meet you guys. Like, great. So we start processing the bull and we're running out of light. So I'm running my headlamp, start processing the bull and getting them all chopped up. The guys show up 
And they were so excited to completely disregard the fact that we said we were out of food and water. They were just excited. We got a bull down and they showed up with a bottle of peanut butter flavored whiskey. Oh God. <laughs> just to celebrate. Recipe, I'm like, recipe for okay. disaster. <laughs> right. We're already starting to get dehydrated because we haven't had any water here. Now all of a sudden, and you're not going to not have a pull of peanut butter flavored whiskey or something. You just got a bowl on the ground. So obviously you take a swill of whiskey. I'm like, okay, that's enough. So we finished processing the bowl, get packed up and we're thinking, okay, as a crow flies, it's not that far to camp. So it's not going to be that bad of a pack out. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, we start hiking out and my headlamp starts to flicker oh, because I'd been running it the full time. I was breaking down the, the, uh, elk mm-hmm. and I'd probably been running it a bit around camp. So I'm hiking out, my headlamp starts to flicker and I've got a, you know, bag loaded with meat. We're pushing down through steep braided alders, just nasty country. And my headlamp, sure enough, obviously cuts out. So I'm sitting there, no water, no food, headlamp just died on me. And I'm, I'm hiking off of the guy's headlamp in front of me and behind me. So like the whole experience was just, it went from being one of the biggest highs of the season to an absolute, and to be perfectly honest, we were in Grizz country and everything too. And you can't carry sidearms in Canada. So you, you gotta be smart. And yeah, the whole thing just turned into an absolute nightmare. We ended up getting back down to camp just before seven in the morning. So like just hiking out all the way through the night, you couldn't ditch the meat because if you ditch the meat, the bears will come in just right. because it was such a heavy, you know, heavily populated area with Grizz. So while we were coming down, at one point I tripped. I went head first into the dark with a fully loaded pack. I don't know how it happened, but I got completely lucky because it was all covered in shale and like sharp sticks and rocks. Mm. And somehow my head hit the one spot that was a soft patch of ground. But my bag drove my head into the ground. I knocked myself out. Oh, shit. Um, pretty bad. But woke up just the side of my face was smashed a little bit, but not too, too bad. But... Uh, <laughs> We ended up, yeah, it was a complete nightmare, but we ended up getting back down to camp. But you asked kind of like, you know, what have I learned mm-hmm. from a hunt? Now, because of that, I, to this day, will never, I always keep at least, you know, half a liter to a liter somewhere in my bag that I will not touch until like emergency situation. I always, always, always have a backup headlamp mm-hmm. in my kill kit that is completely fully charged, locked left alone and i always have a power bar like a energy bar granola bar some sort of like kind of you know booster bar in my bag is that emergency last resort because after a pack of like that an experience like that mm-hmm. you kind of that was probably the moment in my hunting career where i went from just a bullheaded i'm invincible I can get through anything without water or food or anything like that was probably one of the most humbling situations I've had in the bush where I realized. And wait, you, you were with a bunch of guys, right? Like that, think about how much worse that situation would have been if it was just you or you and a camera. Yeah. Would have been brutal. Yeah. If it had, if it had been just me and a cameraman, I mean, yeah. When like on the way out, I had very, very heavy load on my back and me and my buddy Kyle and, uh, we probably carried the, the larger loads because our two friends that came up, we just gave them a bit and said, you guys head straight out. They So what happened, again, lesson to be learned is they kind of took off ahead of us. They came up, we loaded their bags and said, thanks, guys. You guys are taking some out, you know, get heading back to camp. So they, they took off and they, they went out ahead of us. And then it was me, my buddy Kyle and our cameraman hiking out with the heavier packs coming out the back end when when stuff really started hitting the fan, you know. So, I mean, it was just... Mm. yeah it was a very humbling very humbling experience and you kind of realize i've always known that the stakes are high in the backcountry, but i've also always kind of been that fortunate guy where i got to be stupid and i got away with a lot mm-hmm. and in that situation you know falling knocking yourself out and having your headlamp go and all of those things you kind of just realize how quickly things can go awry yeah, things can if go you're not a little quick. more prepared and smart so <clears throat> I, like you, I learned the hard way and I keep three sources of light with me, three sources of oh. being able to start a fire and I do the water mm-hmm. and, and the food thing like you do. And l- let me tell you this. So I, t- I just told you, I keep three sources of fire starting. Two years ago, we got caught in a like, like whiteout conditions kind of, but found a pretty good like 
tree complex to get on there that kind of protected us and all. But I wanted, I knew I needed and wanted to start a fire. And my first two forms of starting a fire are I have a plasma lighter that runs off of battery. And right. I charged it the day before, the night before, actually. But it failed. So I'm like, okay, cool. Then I got my high, my high altitude lighter, which is you know like a regular butane or whatever style lighter, but it runs off a different type of fuel. Went to go use that, and it wouldn't work. Somehow, some way, the flint was jacked up on it, or the starting mechanism wasn't was jacked, and it wouldn't work. I ended up having to start that fire with, uh, you know, a rod and and uh, and striker. And luckily I had, I think, pyro putty or one of those with me, which made it a little bit easier because I told you it was snowing and, you know, a little bit of moisture. Oh, that, you're that, that stuff don't yeah, work Yeah, the well. humidity. Mm-hmm. So able to get it, you know, fire started and we, we got warm and then went about the rest of the day. The snow let up, thank God. But I was like, man, I took three things with me and I got down to my last and hardest you know and then i was like and i can't tell you how many times i had the flashlight thing happen to me a buddy of mine shot a coos buck that i was helping him like uh helping him out on his hunt and we're tracking in we got we kind of got turned around because it was dark uh while we were tracking and i i wasn't lost because i knew where we were at but i we lost a truck um, I didn't know where the truck was parked, you know, and my phone was dead. So I was using Onyx at the time. I didn't have my GPS to mm-hmm. like locate the road and I had to go and my freaking headlight died. And luckily I had my little, I have a little clip on like flashlight that I was able to, to use. But ever since then I was like, shit, I'm taking freaking three damn lights with me because you never know. Like, this shit happens all the damn time, you know. And uh, I mean, nope. I basically made it back with one of those little Browning, you know, clip-on your bill flashlights. It was like it's like one LED. Uh, oh man! You know, I just had that on, and it's October in Arizona, so we're still talking snakes and you know, fun shit like that. So I was like, yeah, I definitely feel the being overprepared thing. People make fun of me all the time. Like, why do you carry such a heavy pack? I'm like, dude, you know, have a couple of shit go wrong for you out in the freaking field. And I'm not a backcountry hunter. Like doing what you were, you right. know, talking about going down, a, you know, day and a half down the river and da 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 da. I don't do that shit. Like I, I stopped doing that. <laughs> I stopped doing that years ago because – one, I'm 47 now. I, not that I don't have it in me and that I couldn't do it. I probably could. But it's not as easy for me to do it, number one. And number two, I got to stay connected to my work. The only reason why I'm able to do what I do is because I'm able to run my business as long as I got cell phone service and access to email at times. You know, So I do a lot of front country hunting. You know, I don't backpack I'm one of those guys that'll hike in 10, 12 miles in a day and then hike back out, you know, to get to sleep in a freaking cabin or something. But anyway, I'm just saying if I was doing crazy backcountry stuff, you betcha I'm going to have redundancy. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's one of those things. And I think, uh, you know, everybody kind of over prepares or overpacks in certain areas based on their previous experiences. And you learn kind of what everybody, like I get a lot of people that ask me, you know, what's the perfect pack setup look like? And I'm going on this hunt. What do I need to have in my bag? And I'll tell people, like, I can tell you what I pack. I've always told you, this is what I do, but I'm not telling you this is what's perfect for you. Right. Because what I do, what my preference is, I might be able to be comfortable being colder longer than you. Or, you know, maybe I'm the kind of, like, I always, I'm bald, so I always need a toque. Like if I don't have a toque on my head, my head gets cold. Like I will get sick within a day. It's, mm. it's going to happen or a, a beanie as you guys. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Yeah. I know um, what you were talking about. So, <laughs> so there's just certain things where, you know, there's, there's kind of the, 
this is the base pack that you're probably going to want to work off of, but everybody has their own preferences on what they use and, and life experiences. But I look back at what I used to like, what I grew up hunting with, I had an energy bar, like a little nutrition bar in each back pocket. I wouldn't even carry a water bottle with me because I'd just drink from the creeks or whatever I saw around me. I'd have a few extra rounds in my pocket, my rifle. I didn't even have binoculars. Mm -hmm. And I'd never even carried a backpack. I had, I still have it hanging here in my room, in my office. It was kind of a cut up toe strap with two pieces of paracord hanging off of it. And I'd loop a piece of paracord around each antler on a deer to its head. Mm. And I would use that as a tow rope and I would drag it. Didn't matter where I shot it. I drug it back out whole. Yep. I never broke down an animal field. And like, that's what I used to hunt in. Yep. And I, I wasn't very all much day different. With that. <laughs> I wasn't that much different <laughs> than you, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the older I get, maybe it's just, you get into more interesting situations and you kind of learn, okay, maybe I want this next time or that or the other. But, uh, you know, after some of my stories I've had and close calls I've had with the gear I've had, I'm like, how did I not die as a kid out in the bush? But yeah, well, <laughs> I'm kind of glad I had those experiences. My experiences when I was a kid were I was in New York, but you know, even upstate New York, there's there's their cha- you know challenges and so on and so forth, but not like you know you're never terribly far away from civilization or a farmhouse or something, you know, that you could get to. But, uh, I remember vividly being up in Binghamton with my dad. I don't know how old I was. I was probably like 12 or something like that, but I had shot a deer and my dad and I had, we had to go back across this like Creek crossing, but the log that was across it was suspended above it, probably two or three feet above the water. So it was pretty high. It wasn't like right on the water. And, um, it had, it was, you know, mid November, mid to late November. It was snow on the ground and cold and, you know, upstate New York. And, um, we drugged the deer down to that log and my dad's like, okay, well let's cross here. Let's go back to our buddy's house. Um, that we were staying with and uh, we'll come back and we'll get the deer or whatever. And my dad slipped and fell off that log and into the water. And then for somehow, some way, I don't know if it's because he fell and he was super cold and a little disoriented. We didn't find our way back to the farmhouse very fast. It took us a long time and we weren't very far. Like, I, I I mean, we had to been like a half a mile or so, but it wasn't like maybe three quarters of a mile. It wasn't like super far. And, um, but if you're, that was a dangerous situation, you know, and I was a kid and like dad potentially could have gotten a really shitty, we we end up being okay. And we end up getting there, but it was like, you start looking back at stuff like that and you're like, man, that could have went sideways. Like, really quick you know in a in a hurry yeah i mean you say oh it wasn't that far away and you said what was it three quarters of a mile or something and you know to most people to the average individual somebody who hasn't been in a situation like that you're like oh yeah three quarters of a mile it's not that bad but if you've fallen in a creek during winter if you've ever been like i've done it i've fallen in and gotten wet and you realize in a hurry like things get very serious very quick like hypothermia you like you start to panic anxiety kicks in you like you don't think straight so even just the ability to think calmly in those types of situations like you learn a lot about yourself and about you know understanding your situation in a hurry when you're out there and that's why i always say like the hunting that's why a big reason i can't wait to introduce my kid to it one day is because i think you learn so many valuable life lessons and you know, yeah. uh, the, the you, you learn about real real world consequences. You're out there. You're worried about you know, staying warm, mm-hmm. staying fed, staying hydrated. Like the most basic primal needs of a human being. That's what you focus on out there. And I think it, it helps kind of refocus and bring life back into perspective. But it also teaches you a lot of real consequences in the world. Not all this fake fabricated stuff that people are worried about these days. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, it actually brings up a lesson that I learned way back then early on. And this is something you should teach your son. You know, when you're taking them out there in the field and 
I forget to do this with my with my kids, and I and I try to catch myself. Is to teach them to pay attention, not just follow you, but to pay attention to where we're going. Because if something happens to dad, you got to be able to get back on your own. So what I started doing is like, we got out of the truck and we're going to start walking. Okay. What time is it? Okay. Which way is the sun oriented right now? Okay. So we're walking in this direction. Like keep in mind, be mindful of what's going on Mm -hmm. because what happens if dad passes out or gets slips and falls and hits his head? Like, how are we, how are we getting out of here? How are you getting out of here? I might not get out of here. How are you getting out of here? You know? Yeah. How are you getting out of there? Or how are you going to, you know, go get help or right. things like that? So yeah, I know that's, that's actually a really good lesson. That's a, yeah, well, you that's know, an important detail to focus on. Yeah. Everybody's always worried about, okay, yeah, let's protect our kids when we're going out uh, and doing these, you know, potentially dangerous situations. But you're the, the, the biggest lesson there is not to prevent something happening to them. It's God forbid something happens to you. And now you're no longer there to guide them and protect them. How are they going to deal with that situation? You know, that's like having the conversation. Okay. In daddy's backpack, this is where the inReach is. This is the button. This is how you use it. This is how you do SOS on the iPhone. This is how you, you know, how you use a map or how you use the GPS. And, you know, those things are the things that, like, that we should spend the most time on with them now, the wisdomanship stuff, so that, you know, they can get out of those situations if, if they should arise. And that was, that was yeah, a realization I, think, I had as a kid and I try to translate it, but I catch myself all the time. You know, it's, it's so much easier to give a man a fish than teach him how to fish, you know, and, uh, well, to make that assumption that you'll be there or be, you'll be uh, coherent enough to be able to take him through the situation if things go wrong. Cause mm-hmm. as a, as a father, you're, you're the protector. You're going to, you know, make sure everything's good. But like you said, you could slip, you could have an injury and then, you have to make sure that, you know, your kid is prepared if you're not able to be that part of the equation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's a very, very good lesson. For sure. It's just, it's, it's, I, I think it's one of the most important, like in, in the building blocks of, of, of what they should be learning, you know, early on. So, yeah, even, even before learning the basics of the hunting, I think a lot of, um, you know, cause, your first thoughts when you're looking at getting your child out in the wild is, you know, just teaching them, you know, how to stay quiet when you're moving, what Mm -hmm. to look for when, when looking for wildlife, different things like that versus, you know, the things that you or I may take for granted regarding survival, regarding, you know, finding out where you are, being able to get back or understanding how to use an in reach. Like you said, the SOS features on a phone those things you take for granted, you're focusing on the other higher level stuff. And sometimes it's, it's probably quite easy to skip over that lower level, just basic survival. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome, man. Um, I want to have you back on and kind of go through and we'll talk about some, uh, other, uh, hunting adventures of yours we kind of got off on a tangent early in the beginning talking about uh, argentina and <laughs> politics and everything else but i enjoyed having you on and um definitely want to have you back on we'll talk and maybe we'll do a hunt together one of these days i, I, I haven't been hey, up to, you never... i haven't been up to canada in a freaking long ass time but uh you're uh you're more than welcome to come down to arizona Get a little different feel over here. I know in January when you're freezing your ass off, you, you come down here. <laughs> Arizona would probably sound really nice when it's late season up here. And like you said, I'm worried about frostbite. Thinking, you know what? Maybe it's time to you know defrost my gear and head down a little bit. But you know, um, yeah. I, I, again, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast here. And at the beginning, you and I were both kind of you know this is going to be exciting to see how it plays out. Um, I think because like you said, we don't have that rapport that most people have or that we typically have when we jump on these. So it was, I expected there would be some tangents, but I, at the same time, I didn't think that you and I would have had so many of the same shared experiences, even mm-hmm. with regards to 
with Argentina. So it's, it's not surprising that as soon as we found that, I was like, oh man, I could talk to you for hours about this because it was such a wild, crazy time. I mean, you and I could have talked forever about that one. So yeah, I, I'd absolutely. like to I'm share sure. the whole story with you one day. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty nuts. <laughs> I'd love to hear your side Maybe too. we'll have to share that share that at a hunt camp one of these days but I'd, I'd absolutely love to be back on sometime and uh yeah i'm sure we got a lot more stories to share and a lot more uh parallels in life that uh we could have some good good stories come out for sure well thank you very much and uh i hope you have a good season if i don't talk to you and uh we'll you know keep in touch perfect absolutely and i'm sure we'll have a few more stories to share next time we chat all the best absolutely take it easy Hey guys, thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much, and we'll catch you on the next show.